2: Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today
1: with Byte. This is the Ion Travel Podcast with CBS News Travel Editor Peter Greenberg.
0: Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here and welcome to another edition of the Ion Travel Podcast. This week it's my tribute to one of the five boroughs of New York City, the Bronx, with everything from great bakery to great hip hop. I'm speaking with Vanessa Gibson, the borough president, and yes, we'll also talk about the Yankees. Then Peter Madonia, the owner of the legendary Madonia Bakery, about the secrets of his neighborhood and what makes Semolina so good. Then a visit to the Botanical Gardens, followed by a hands-on tour Of the world of hip hop. Bronx style. First up, Vanessa Gibson.
1: We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here.
0: Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with
3: eligible trade in when you switch minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with a pay discount using debit or bank account $5 more per line without auto pay plus taxes and fees phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement Due $35 per line
2: connection
1: charge apply ctmobile.com
0: so let's talk about the bronx because you know when i was growing up you know i went through the bronx and then i got to the bronx mm-hmm. i you know and and here we are i mean we're we're about thirty-minute walk from Yankee Stadium, right? But you can get there very quickly. Uh, we're near the we're near the the, the Garden, yes. Right? We're I mean, we, we're close to everything, yes. And but if you look at the boroughs of New York, the Bronx is not just one neighborhood; it's so many different neighborhoods. That's right. So paint the picture of the Bronx for people, because you know, folks who come to New York, they don't ever go north a lot. That's right. <laughs> So tell me about the Bronx.
2: Right. So the Bronx is the original birthplace of hip hop. It is a beautiful borough of different cultures, nationalities, beautiful music, culture, style, cultural institutions. We are home to the New York Yankees, champions. By the way, I have to stop.
0: Wait a minute. Stop. Uh Hold on. Uh Uh-oh. No, I got to tell you. Uh Uh-oh. When I was growing up, I hated the Yankees. You know why? You know why? (laughs) Why? Because I didn't trust anybody in pinstripes.
2: Oh, goodness.
0: I'm a Mets guy. You, I'm a okay, Mets guy. You're a Mets guy. I am a Mets guy, Yes, yeah, That's 60, okay. I have Mets hey, friends. These are the years I remember. 69 yes. and 86, right? You know why? 69 was when they won the series for the first time. The only... And eight, wait a minute. Wait a minute. And 86 was the famous Mookie Wilson ball under Bill Buckner's legs, which allowed the Yanke- the Mets to win the sixth game and then go on to win the seventh. Come on. Okay. Okay. You you want to talk about the Yankees? Loyal
2: fan. We have more championships.
0: But you know what? You had more money. You had more money. You could buy better. You could buy better players. You did. You did.
2: I love it. But the Bronx is a beautiful place. We are the northernmost county in New York City. Uh, Our former bar president often affectionately called us God's country. We are the only borough in the city of New York that is referred to as the Bronx with the word the in front of it. And I think it's very distinctive because we have a style of our own. And there's so much beauty in the Bronx, so much potential. And no matter where you go, you can find the best seafood. uh,
0: Seafood in the Bronx.
2: Seafood in the Bronx. City Island, yeah, L- Little Italy. By the way, have.
0: by the way, I got suspended from Bronx Science one day I because I snuck out of went, school because I went to City Island. <laughs> you went to City I Island. I got thrown out. That you could day, have yeah.
2: gone after school.
0: No, it was a beautiful day. Oh
2: goodness! You see, <laughs> focus.
0: <laughs> I had a choice: slide rule and calculus, or City Island. I, I chose <laughs> I City I would Island. I go with City Island too. Yeah. Okay. Good. All right. so you have all this stuff, but but you know, I remember uh, my first introduction to South Bronx was when I did all the stories on a kid that came from the South Bronx named Freddie Prinze. Mm-hmm. He was the comedian who had the biggest hit show on television, Chico and the Man, but his roots were South Bronx. South and that's, Bronx. That's what America learned about the South Bronx because he called himself a Hungarian. He was, <laughs> he was, he was partly Hungarian and partly Puerto, Rican. Puerto Rican. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. I love it. I learned my Spanish in the Bronx.
2: Oh, un poquito. Oh, yeah. yeah. Habla espanol.
0: Oh, yeah. (laughs) Mas (laughs) o menos. But the bottom line is, it's a a real immersion. Mm -hmm. So what's, for, for people who have never been to the Bronx and they come for the first time, what's the biggest surprise to them?
2: So I think the biggest surprise sometimes is that the Bronx is so diverse because we have so many different nationalities and cultures. We have residents that come here from all walks of life. We are the largest concentration of the Latino community, but it is a beautiful mosaic of Latin communities from the Dominican Republic, from Puerto Rico, from Colombia, from Ecuador, the Garifuna community, from Honduras, from Belize, from Costa Rica, and we also have a vibrant African american caribbean american community we have west africans from nigeria and ghana and and so many different parts of africa and i think what's different about us is that you can go anywhere in the bronx and find someone speaking a different language you can go anywhere in the bronx and find your curry your pastelitos uh, uh your empanadas you can just find anything anywhere in the bronx
0: And City Island for fish.
2: And City Island for (laughs) seafood. That's right. That's right.
0: I'll tell you a story. And it goes back to the subway. One of my biggest thrills in taking the subway, right, is that it comes up after Yankee Stadium. Mm -hmm. So I always went in the first car. Yes. Because I wanted to come out of that tunnel and see it. And it's beautiful. Yeah. It's beautiful. And if you time it right, you can see about 30 seconds of the game. (laughs) (laughs) As a a a Met fan. That's about all I wanted to see as a Met (laughs) fan. So when you became the borough president, that's after your stint in the city council, mm-hmm. you've had other things to deal with, but you knew what your challenges were.
2: Absolutely. I think the Bronx had faced a number of challenges before the COVID-19 pandemic around uh, unstable housing, around quality health care, making sure that we have access and opportunity for youth, seniors, and our veterans, and most importantly, health disparities. A lot of Bronx residents before the pandemic lived with obesity, asthma, heart disease, and diabetes. And I think after the pandemic, it was further exacerbated and so people were staying at home, spotlight. right? Staying home and eating. People were staying home. People were eating, but people were afraid to go out. A lot of yeah. elders were afraid. Of course, people went out for basic necessities like food and going to medical appointments. But I think people were generally afraid because we didn't know what COVID nineteen was at all.
0: Yeah. Exactly. We, were, you were, you were basically navigating uncharted waters. Exactly. Exactly. You know, you mentioned medical stuff. Here's another a trip down memory lane for me. Everybody knows about the Grand Concourse. I mean, that was the Grand Boulevard. It was, <laughs> it, and, and in those days, in the in the 20s and 30s, people strolled down the Grand Concourse. Right. Right. You know, when I went to the Grand Concourse, my dentist was on the Grand Concourse. Yeah.
2: my dentist is there now.
0: <laughs> Come on. <laughs> are you serious (laughs) very serious see certain things just don't change but i'll tell you my my first experience when i used to come out of bronx science and we'd sneak over to the grand concourse why and pelham right Mm -hmm. you know what i'd sneak over there for an egg cream now you don't know what an egg cream, cream is do you I, aha i got gotcha. ah, you don't, come tasted on. It. <laughs> okay anybody who born and raised in new york in the old days i'm older than you so i can say this would know what an egg cream is now you have a homework assignment you got to go get one i'm gonna go and there's one. still a couple of places you can get one
2: yes there are
0: yeah mm-hmm. i know and by the way there's nothing there's nothing to do with egg in it people they just call it an egg cream That's i still right. never understood that you get the egg cream and the nickel red licorice and oh, that part, I know you know.
2: Well, I like red licorice, but you know, it's not five cents anymore.
0: No, no kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but when I had Inflation. red licorice, yeah, well, you used to pull it. You used to, mm-hmm. but they were little ones. Now that now that's they're like softer and more synthetic and stuff. Not the old days. <laughs> but bottom line is, egg cream, and you can get a cheeseburger for like twelve cents, and that was it. Cheeseburger and an egg cream, you're in. You know, because your mom would give you like you know twenty five cents emergency money. In case you had to use the phone, right? No so cell you, phones. No, no, oh, please. But if you <laughs> saved up two quarters, you got your egg cream and the cheeseburger. That's right. So you had to plan ahead. That's right. So, what's your biggest challenge now? Because you've done a lot of work on the parks, mm-hmm. right? Because a city without parks is not a city. Right. So tell me about the parks in the Bronx.
2: The parks are beautiful. Our largest park, of course, is Pelham Bay Park. We also have Van Cortlandt, Crotona Park, Claremont Park, lots of playgrounds, community gardens, and Green Thumbs. Our parks are our greatest treasures. We also have the only state park in the Bronx, Roberto Clemente. State Park, we have the High Bridge. Name
0: for, name for. Name
2: for the famous humanitarian baseball player, baseball player Roberto Clemente, uh, who actually died going to Nicaragua um, to deliver goods to the people there. And I represented that park in the city council. We invested $100 million in Roberto Clemente State Park and it's gorgeous. And we wanna make it even better
0: exactly so you got a lot of parks
2: yes we have gorgeous parks and i think we can always look at more opportunities to renovate a lot of our parks people complain they don't have comfort stations we would love bathrooms uh we're also looking at renaming some of our parks so Malully park is going to be renamed this fall in honor of the late great reverend wendell t foster who was the first african-american elected from bronx county to the city council we are renaming the rec center the pool and the park in his honor and that's in, in recognition of juneteenth which we recognize as a city holiday a few years ago. But I also think our parks are overly used. And we saw that during the pandemic because people had nowhere to go. No catering halls were open, no clubs. So people were celebrating bar mitzvahs, sweet 16s, birthday parties, graduations, everything, weddings weddings in the park. And I think this summer it'll be a little different, but they'll still be heavily used. So we have to not only invest in parks and maintenance, but staff. We have to have more garbage receptacles. But I think as the population grows, as we build more housing with more school-aged children, we need to expand on more parks. Yeah. We're not building brand new parks. We're just renovating the existing parks.
0: Right, because you don't have the real estate. Correct. Right, just right. making them better. That's right. All right. By the way, if truth be told, I got married in the park. Which one? Uh, sorry, Central Park. Oh, okay. Uh, you, you, will, you, will you forgive me?
2: <laughs> I will forgive you, yes. I
0: got married by the Bethesda Fountain. It was gorgeous. It was great. <laughs> and, and, and everybody was out there anyway. I, That's I, true. They didn't clear it out for me. You have
2: your own crowd.
0: I, oh, I had, I, I had a big crowd. <laughs> they had no idea what I was doing there. But I got married there. Great story. Bottom line though is Bronx is coming back.
2: Yes, the Bronx is coming back. I think COVID-19 was a real setback, and I believe every setback is preparation for a comeback. We have to deal with health disparities. We have to deal with achieving universal um, health care, universal after school programs. We have to expand and invest in more community centers, which are safe havens for young people. We have to build on our parks and invest in our treasures, like waterfront access from the Bronx River to the Harlem River.
0: My thanks to Vanessa. When I was growing up, there were two things I never missed when I headed north from Manhattan to the Bronx, an egg cream and baked goods. Peter Madonia knows that when you have a great bakery, the community follows.
1: Peter, welcome. Thank you. Uh, it's really nice to be here. Appreciate it.
0: So let's talk about the bakery because when I grew up, I'm, I, I have to admit I'm a Manhattan guy, but I spent a lot of time in the Bronx because that's where I went to high school. Uh, I was up there on the Grand Concourse and in Pelham and looking for my egg cream and and my uh, and my that's right. <laughs> and of course, the other thing I always like to get and most people don't appreciate it. I don't eat meat anymore, but boy, do I miss it. My pastrami and Swiss on rye with Russian dressing. But that's another story. But then there were the baked goods and that's where you guys come in. Uh, you know, we didn't we didn't go a day without without hitting a bakery. And that's really part of the Bronx, isn't it?
1: Uh, It certainly is. And it's certainly a big part of Little Italy. Uh, I mean, when I was a kid, there were probably half a dozen um, just bread bakeries, much less uh, pastry shops.
0: And so what's really changed though, because there are certain things you have to continue to bake, right?
1: Yeah, we still make all the same products my grandfather made, my father made. um, But, um, you know, our clientele has evolved and um, any good small business has to evolve to survive. And so we Expanded our product line dramatically to a, really a maybe twenty or so specialty breads, um, breads with jalapeno and pepper, for instance. That is not traditionally Italian, that's for sure. Um, but uh, but our clientele um, wants something different, so we try and get creative and have gotten creative.
0: Well, in what's the the
1: what, last 20 years.
0: what's still on your menu that your grandfather made?
1: We make a traditional semolina bread, which is uh, the you know yellow flour. A lot of seeds on it, which is a traditionally Sicilian. That's um, uh, where my grandfather came from. Um, and a house bread, you know, with a thick crust. Um, so, all those traditional, either French bread, um, like, you know, a baguette, um, all of those traditional items um, are still on our shelves. Uh, but in addition, um, you know, we have bread, we make a white chocolate bread, make a cranberry walnut bread. And, and, now and our talking. signature product now is uh, an olive bread um, that has. Uh, really become the number one uh, on the hit parade as people come into the bakery, uh, and it, it, that's something that uh, my partner Charlie created about uh, fifteen years ago, and, and just has taken off.
0: And what's and what's the best pastry?
1: Um, we're we're not a pastry shop, so the, the, that's the great thing about Little Italy is they're real pastry shops, right? That have um, all the traditional Italian pa- pastries and egg layers and. Um, um, we make we do make cannolis, which is the one pastry we make. But other than that, we're not a pastry shop. You actually have we have several pastry shops in the neighborhood, in addition to traditional panificios, um, uh, which is the bread bakery. Uh, we we do make a full line of cookies and um, but but we're not a traditional pastry shop. That's uh, not but our you know, what?
0: but you know what? You just said the magic word cannoli because yeah, uh, there's a wonderful book out. We actually had the author on the show. Uh, Mark Seal, who wrote the book on the actual, the real story, the actual making of the movie The Godfather. And the name of the book is Leave the Gun, Take the Cannoli. <laughs> <laughs> and,
1: uh, we do something a little bit different with cannolis. We we actually fill them, uh, fill them and put them in a showcase. And uh, we, we've done that for, uh, for ages and, and people seem to love it. They actually like watching uh, sales folks fill the cannolis Fresh and a lot of them buy one extra and eat it right there.
0: You know, and looking at your at your background and your history, I, I, I would love for you for our audience to just describe for us your definition of the
1: Bronx. Um, it's it it was it was very much and still is um, a, a bunch of different neighborhoods, um, different ethnic neighborhoods. And um, I remember as a kid, I mean, Little Italy was. Almost exclusively, uh, first generation or second generation Italians, um, and uh, just to the west of us was an Irish neighborhood. Um, a little bit further south was the Hispanic neighborhood, and and that is how the Bronx was comprised of for, for many many years. Uh, so I I would say it's a it's a borough of uh, unique neighborhoods. Now you have a very active West Indian neighborhood up in the northeast Bronx. Um, so you know the the cultures have changed, but the concept, I don't think that's very much.
0: The other thing in your background, which I think is fascinating, and I'm going to share it with the audience, is most of my listeners know I'm still a volunteer fireman in New York. You were deputy commissioner of the fire department.
1: Yes, I was. Um, I, I mean, that I was there um, in the late 1980s, um, and uh, the reason I left was my, my brother, who was running the business, uh, was killed in a car accident. And, huh. uh, you know, this is a... Um, it's a family business, so um, so somebody had to pick up the mantle and uh, keep things going. And you know, it, it's one of the reasons we're still around 104 years later.
0: Let's talk about the bakery, but of course, let's give it a sense of place. You're up there on Arthur Avenue. Tell everybody about Arthur Avenue.
1: It's it it's part of um, what is considered Little Italy in the Bronx. Um, it was that um, really involved the early 1900s. For example, my grandfather opened the bakery in 1918 because uh, the Bronx Zoo, the Botanical Garden, um, Fordham University needed stonemasons. And it's been, that is a, a craft uh, that Italians were quite good at. Um, and they started to build the Bronx Zoo in the late um, late 1800s. Um, and then neighborhoods evolved around uh, people who probably came. Harlem in, in the Maine uh, when they first came to America and, and and then started to move up closer to where they worked and a neighborhood evolved. And it, it really was um, primarily Italian. Uh, and by primarily, I mean in the mid-90s in terms of um, who lived there, probably through the 80s, 1980s. So um, it really was a neighborhood that um, was an an, an Italian ghetto in many ways in the best sense of that word um, for a very long time and that's that's why so many businesses uh, were there to feed the people who live there and the people who work there
0: exactly and for people who've not been there before not difficult to get to right
1: Uh, it's interesting Uh, if you have a car it's not difficult to get to it it is a bit of a transit desert in terms of public transportation um there's a metro north station within walking distance but uh, even to the zoo in the garden uh, there is no no train um that is easy easily accessible it's what we uh, used to call a two-pair zone (laughs) Uh, i don't think anybody uses that i don't think anybody uses that term anymore but it it does give away my age hey i
0: I remember that don't worry
1: Um, but so it is um, it's very easy accessible by car and, and it's part of the reason why our our clientele is quite regional it's not local it, it, we really draw and we know this from marketing data from uh, the, the five boroughs um, the, the New York, New Jersey Connecticut the contiguous counties um, you know Rockland and uh, Westchester and uh, Nashville and Suffolk um, as well as Jersey and Connecticut so Um, and we're very centrally located around the parkways and highways.
0: My thanks to Peter. You can't go to the Bronx, or in fact, maybe I should say you shouldn't go to the Bronx, without heading to the Botanical Gardens. 250 acres and an oasis. Joanna Gork knows a few reasons why she can claim the Bronx is the greenest borough. The spirit of performance is what defines
3: Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.
0: Joanna, here's the most amazing thing it's over 100 years old and it's how many acres
3: the New York Botanical Garden is 250 acres in the middle of the Bronx
0: that's right I mean it's sort of like there it is and nobody I mean it's it's just amazing it's and it's an amazing place to go because it's surrounded by the rest but it's this little basically uh, it's an enclave it's a it's it's a little Piece of of greenery that's amazing, and it always changes.
3: That's exactly right. It's interesting because the Bronx is actually New York's greenest borough, and we're very proud to.
0: Okay, now how do you make that claim?
3: Uh, well, we make it. It's we're <laughs> the greenest borough. We have the most parks and open land, and um, the New York Botanical Garden is part of an area known as Bronx Park, comprising the garden, the zoo, and Fordham University. And, and
0: I must say, I, I went to the graduation at Fordham University about two years ago. I was amazed at the greenery just on that campus. It was, it, was, it was a surprise to me because I remember going on the subway at Fordham Road. There was not a lot of greenery on Fordham Road, at least not by the subway. So this is like, whoa, where did this come from? And that's all part of the same location.
3: That's exactly right. That's just across the street from the New York Botanical Garden is Fordham University. And I think it's hard for us to remember now. But of course, the Bronx used to be the countryside outside of New York City Uh, and we're so happy that we can offer that same sort of refuge to uh, to city residents
0: and you do a lot of rotating exhibitions between what five and eight a year give me an idea of what's there now
3: well uh, we have our annual orchid show on right now Uh, Jeff Latham who is I know Jeff
0: Latham oh my god I, I see Jeff Latham in Paris Because he does the most amazing, anybody who ever walks into the Georges Sank in Paris is in for a treat. The floral arrangements in that hotel, even in the guest rooms, it's stunning. And they change it every day. It's unreal. And he's doing it.
3: Yes. Jeff came and worked with our horticulture team to install the orchid show. We have thousands of orchids throughout the Enid A. Haupt Conservatory. And Jeff brought a little bit of his signature style and a little bit of that Paris access to new york and it's wonderful because um it's the first time we're bringing the orchid show back in its full form since the beginning of the COVID-19 okay it's, pandemic. One,
0: it, it's one thing to say it's an orchid show how many orchids are we talking about
3: oh thousands thousands of orchids throughout the unit Haupt conservatory
0: wow now of course i'm going to give you like a city res- response here You know, I'm like the brown thumb of the world. If somebody gives me a a plant, plant, on the way back to my house, the plant says, why prolong this? I'll die now, right? So when we talk about an orchid, it's not easy to care for orchids. And so when you have thousands of orchids, what goes into that?
3: Oh, so much work goes into that, and I will confess that I too have have <laughs> murdered one or two plants in my day. Um, but that is, and and I'm not allowed near the plants at the garden, of course. Um, my colleagues, especially our senior curator of orchids, Mark Hatchadorian, are experts in all things orchid, and they that are. That is ones. a
0: job they will never offer me. Senior curator of orchids.
3: No, no me neither. No. <laughs> but they are the folks that are. Taking care of our rare orchid collection every day of the year in our production greenhouses across the grounds, and then they are also the folks that work with a designer like Jeff Latham to bring his vision to life in living plants, which is an incredible feat.
0: Now, talk about the glass conservatory.
3: The Haupt Conservatory is really the it's the largest and and. Um, most significant example of a Victorian-era glass house in the United States. And we recently completed a historic restoration of the central dome of the glass house. And as part of that, um, my team organized an exhibition highlighting the history of Lord and Burnham, the distinguished glass house architects, so that we could share with our visitors all of this amazing history
0: and, you know, it's not easy that you find a lot of glass observ- uh, conservatories these days of that size. Right? You, I've seen one in Paris, right, which is like, st- I mean, it's staggering, right? But when you see one in the Bronx, that's amazing.
3: Well, it's a wonderful gift to all residents of New York City and, of course, the Bronx um, to be able to come and see a, a full acre under glass with plants from all corners of the world.
0: I want everybody to try to visualize this. You just said a full acre under glass, that is, a, is an architectural feat.
3: It is. It is. The, the technology and um, physics that went into creating these amazing buildings, and of course we're talking about um, over a hundred years ago.
0: It's one thing to talk about thousands of orchids. It's one thing to talk about the glass conservatory, which is amazing. Let's talk about daffodils.
3: Sure. Uh, We're getting into daffodil season, um, which extends really uh, starting as early as sometimes late February through March and into April. We will have over a million daffodils blooming uh, on Daffodil Hill, and it's it's an incredible sight to see our visitors. And of course,
0: it's called Daffodil Hill.
3: (laughs) Of course. We couldn't call it anything else. (laughs) When
0: people come, what's the biggest surprise for them that they're not expecting?
3: A visit to the New York Botanical Garden really is um, an experience of being transported out of the city while remaining in the city. It's an oasis. It is. And at the center of our grounds, really what comprises the heart of the New York Botanical Garden is a 50-acre old-growth forest. It is the largest remaining... It's a forest? It is. It's the largest remaining swath of uncut forest that once covered all of New York City... And it's a real opportunity to take a step back in time and to be transported from an urban environment into an enormous natural resource.
0: Wow. So in any given day, try to. since I'm not a curator of orchids, <laughs> but in any given day, how many different plants or other species are coming in to the garden that you're importing? I mean, because there's got to be a lot of movement. It's, it's constantly changing.
3: We have 100 scientists that are working away at the New York Botanical Garden in our labs and in our herbarium and also throughout the world. So um, certainly our scientists are bringing back plant specimens, um, sometimes dried plant specimens that we're bringing into our herbarium so that the scientists that work at the garden, but really scientists worldwide, can study plants. We are an actively collecting institution, and just like any museum or collecting institution, we collect Plants, the, our collection is alive, which is different from when you visit an art museum or a science museum. But yes, we are collecting plants. Um, we're also a CITES rescue center. And when um, if a plant is...
0: Uh, a plant species.
3: If a plant species is, is brought into the United States, into New York, um, and it shouldn't have been, if it was brought here illegally, we will care for it and make it available for scientific study. So that is something that we're always actively doing as well.
0: And what about the species that are endangered? I mean, we, we, we see that around the world, especially with climate change now and global warming. What What's being threatened?
3: Many plants throughout the world are being threatened. Um, I talk to my colleagues in science all the time about, you know, I we have colleagues who are working in the Amazon. We have colleagues who are working throughout the world who are, are documenting plants while they're still here and, and paying attention to the plants that we are losing. Um, they're studying things like the red list, the plants, the, the species that are threatened. And, um, and, and it's troubling, of course. Um, and they're documenting it and studying it and, and hoping that we can figure out how to, how to prevent it.
0: But you also have the problem of invasive species. So when you do the exhibits, Right. It's also an educational opportunity for people who are visiting to understand what is good and what is not so good.
3: Well, I think an invasive species is a, is a species that is where it shouldn't be. Um, it, it, an invasive plant species um, doesn't have natural predators in the environment where it appears. So um, what we are teaching our visitors through um, visits to our native plant garden, for example is what plants can be found growing in this part of the world naturally and showing their beauty and their ecological importance so that everybody who passes through the native plant garden has an appreciation for the importance of these native plants. And um,
0: So it's not just looking at the beauty of them, it's understanding their, their, their
3: derivation. Yes, and the important role that they play in the food web. You know, the native plant garden at the New York Botanical Garden is the spot to see migratory birds in both spring and fall. um, Feasting on seed heads and other other sources of energy for their migration. Um, It's the place to see dragonflies uh, over the water feature. And you're in the middle of the Bronx, and if you look across the horizon, you can see that urban environment, the buildings that surround us, but you're also looking at dragonflies frolicking. It's, it's incredible.
0: Of course, I'm not wait, waiting to see your exhibit on poison ivy. I don't think you will be doing that exhibit. Probably <laughs> no, not. No,
3: but we do teach our visitors about poison <laughs> ivy, of course.
0: <laughs> I grew up learning about poison ivy the hard way.
3: Many of us have learned about poison <laughs> ivy the hard way.
0: My thanks to Joanne. And while most folks can't talk about the Bronx without talking about the Yankees, it's time instead to talk about hip-hop and the voice of the voiceless. Rocky Bucano is commemorating the role of hip-hop in the history of the Bronx. He just happens to be the executive director of the Universal Hip-Hop Museum. Rocky Bucano, how are you, man? I'm great. How are you? Good. And you're a born and raised Bronx guy. I am. Born, raised, and still live here. So... Let's talk about a little bit of the history of hip-hop, because not many people realize, first of all, that it was born here, but not many people even realize what it is. Give me a definition. So
4: hip-hop is a living, breathing culture. It represents five different elements. The basic elements of hip-hop are MCing, DJing, graffiti, and breakdancing. And the most important element is what we call knowledge, knowledge of self. Explain. So knowledge of self means that you understand who you are, what you contribute to the world, and what your aspirations are and how to accomplish those aspirations.
0: Well, I'm gonna to get to that in a second, but I wanna go back to, to maybe one of the stereotypical approaches to hip hop from the outside world, right? So I go back to my early days watching MTV, because that's where I saw it. Right. That's where you saw it. Yeah, that's where everyone saw it. Right? And and what did I you know what I took away from that? Sneakers. <laughs> right? Right. Baggy pants. Baggy pants. Right? Break dancing. Break dancing. Not moonwalking.
4: Not moonwalking. See, that, was, that wasn't hip hop. Well, you know, listen, Mike, Michael Jackson, uh, we actually, you know, Michael Jackson's one of the early influences of hip hop. Him, James Brown, Sly Stone. Well, James
0: Brown especially.
4: Yep, Sly Stone. Uh, and, uh, Sly
0: Stone, if he ever showed up. And George Clinton. You know, George
4: Clinton, you know, uh, the funkadelics. Yeah, funkadelics, Parliament Funkadelics. I remember all those guys, yeah. Uh, Sonia Sanchez, uh, Ella Fitzgerald. People don't understand that hip
0: hop... Stop right there. You went back to Ella Fitzgerald.
4: Duke Ellington? Is is Ella Fitzgerald there because of scat singing? Scat singing, Cap Calloway.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so if you... You know who's one of the best scat singers? Mel Torme. Mel Torme. People don't realize that, yeah. Yeah. But so she qualifies as hip-hop because of scat singing. Well, well, if you look at the rhythmic uh, arrangements
4: of scat, it's almost similar to how uh, today's rap artists deliver rap, but in in a more poetic style, obviously.
0: Right. But hip-hop was more than just the delivery of the song. It It was your physical movement.
4: It's the physical movement. It's the expression of who you are. Hip-hop is known as being the voice of the voiceless because it really uplifts... You know, it came from a marginalized community of uh, black and brown teenagers, and it's really about self-empowerment—how to become
0: better than where you used to be. And okay, I'm going to date myself now. Okay, when I grew up, people would hang out and sing on the stoops. okay <laughs> <Du-wop>. exactly. <laughs> and and I, it, I'm not making this up. And you'd walk, you'd be walking home, and there'd be people sitting on the stoop doing the duet, right? Well. That was on the street. Hip-hop was on the street. On the street. right? That, it, wasn't, it wasn't performed necessarily initially on the stage. It wasn't in a concert hall. This was street music.
4: Yeah, hip-hop began in the parks of the South Bronx. So DJs like myself, we used to, you know... Stop right there. DJs
0: like myself? Tell me about that.
4: So I started as a teenage DJ in the early 70s. My cousin was Pete DJ Jones. He was one of the top mobile disc jockeys here in New York
0: City. And by the way, in those days, DJs didn't make the kind of money they're doing today. No. Never even close.
4: No, but you know, if you... Because that's you, a club scene deal. It, it, it is a club club scene deal, but uh, the the cost of living back then was a lot lower than it is today. So, you know, relatively speaking, you know, it was good money, right? So Yeah, yeah
0: relatively speaking. Relatively speaking. I mean, let, let me put this in some perspective for everybody because <laughs> you know where I'm going with this. You go to Las Vegas on a weekend, and they have a DJ coming in, they're paying that guy $150,000. We weren't getting paid that much. No kidding. (laughs) (laughs) He had bus money.
4: Bus money. So, you know, uh, he was one of the uh, most sought-after DJs, and I was his understudy. So I basically went to all the clubs. I was only 15 years old. I wasn't even supposed to be in the clubs, because, you know, the legal
0: age to enter a club was like 21 years old. So. But, 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 but let the record reflect, you're a tall guy. I am a tall you guy. You looked a little older than your age back then. You could sneak in. I could sneak in. And you wore room. the sunglasses, didn't you? I did. I knew it. I knew it. Okay. okay.
4: So, um, you know, I learned how to, you know, mix and blend and program music for an older, older audience. And uh, I got my break one night at the Stardust Ballroom in the Bronx. And uh, he was uh, not able to perform because he wasn't feeling well, and he told me to take over, and I took over, and the club owner loved me and gave me a job as a professional DJ. A week later,
0: and the rest, as they say, is history. And the rest, as they say, is history. But now, you know, hip hop has has become more mainstream. It's it's in the club. It's more than the clubs. It's it's performed. Right. Well, hip-hop to me is a
4: fabric of today's modern society. It's one of the main exports of American culture around the world. Uh, Hip-hop, you can't go anywhere in the world without seeing some form of expression of hip-hop, whether it's in graffiti, whether it's in the breakdancing, whether it's in the rap music, whether it's in the fashion and the lingo, the self-expression of who, who people are. You know, so... Uh, Some countries and some um, uh, uh, communities around the world even use hip-hop to preserve their native language because as kids get older, they become more uh, globalized, more American. And there's nobody to hand that language down. Right, so they use rap or hip-hop basically to pass down their native language to the next generation of people. Okay, stupid question. You ready? Yep. Where do I see breakdancing now? Because I haven't seen a lot of it lately. So um, actually, we just partnered with Red Bull. Red Bull has been um, uh, producing what's called the BC1 World Championship breakdance competitions around the world. And uh, the last time it was here in the U.S. was in 2009. It's returning to New York
0: City November this year. For the first time in a while. For the first time in a while. Now, let's talk quickly about the museum, because right now you're in a temporary location. We are. Right? Where? So we, are, uh, we have an exhibit called The
4: Revolution of Hip Hop, which is located at the Bronx Terminal Market. Uh, we opened it in 2019, right before the pandemic.
0: Talk about great timing. Yeah. Yep,
4: great timing. Uh, and we are reopening a new exhibit uh, in May of this year. Okay, coming up. And then, of course, the permanent facility is going to be built where? At the Bronx Point, which is right across the street from the Bronx Terminal Market uh, on Exterior Street. So the address is 575 Exterior. Uh, so we are building a 53,000 square foot state-of-the-art Whoa. museum that is going to be- Interactive, dead. of course. Interactive to the 10th degree. And um, we are just excited you know, that this project is happening. It took 12 years to get to where we are. Now, okay, two last questions before we run out of time. Are you still DJing? I don't DJ anymore because <laughs> I have to spend all my time, uh, you know, uh, getting this project ready for, for the world to come visit and see. Uh, but I do admire all, all of the uh, DJs that, are, that, the young DJs that I see today.
0: And second last question here, you're not breakdancing, are you? I, I would break my hip if I tried <laughs> <to>. <laughs> I'd be right there on orthopedic surgery with you. My thanks to Rocky, to Joanna Grohek, to Peter Madonia, and to Vanessa Gibson. And my thanks to you for listening to this Ion Travel podcast. For more conversations with the world's leaders in travel, as well as answers to your travel questions, be sure to rate or review this podcast wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And for all the breaking travel news, that's an easy one. Just log on to petergreenberg.com.
1: The Ion Travel podcast is produced by Amanda Morris and Anthony Protis-Chung. For more content from Peter Greenberg and the Ion Travel team, visit petergreenberg.com. Ion Travel is a production of CBS News Radio.
0: If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com/survey.